John Cleese, I mean, this is this is very special. We've, we've eaten together before. I mean, we've had one-on-ones, haven't we? Because we were preparing to go on and stage. And you also together. interviewed me. Where was that? Where was that you interviewed me? Your father was in the audience, I remember. My father was in the audience, and he met you afterwards, two Cambridge graduates, and you, I think, were wearing sandals with socks. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I haven't worn socks for a very long time because I got arthritis in my left hip, which I had replaced in 1999. But before that, putting on my left sock was the low point of the day. It was very painful. And I stopped wearing socks. And then after they fixed my hip, I suddenly thought, what is the point of socks? (laughs) And I think if you're not living in a cold climate, they are completely pointless because I like very lazy slip-on shoes anyway. So I now must beg your forgiveness because you weren't actually wearing sandals with socks. I think you were wearing shoes without socks. I was wearing shoes without socks and I wasn't listening to you. You're right. Well, I was wearing something without socks, but I don't see the point of socks if you can live in a warm climate. And my my only bucket list now, Matthew, is not to ever be cold again. And now your smile has frozen because I think everything's smooth. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm still moving, but I think the sound's gone. <laughs> You know, it it just cut out when I was talking. It suddenly cut out and your face froze. So I haven't heard anything for about 30 seconds. I was just saying that the venue in question was the Salisbury Playhouse. And it's one of my favorites. It's a great beauty. Oh, Salisbury Playhouse. Yes, that's right. I love some of the older theaters because actually they have a certain intimacy which you don't get in these big arenas. Now, there's so many of these young comedians like playing these huge, uh, and uh, huge stadiums. And I think it misses the point of humor. I think that the greatest humor is a little bit intimate. And that if you put uh, if you put someone on a tiny little stage, and it's not it's not the same. And Eddie Izzard, I think it was Eddie, said to me, "People can always see me on the screen at home." <laughs> you know what I mean? Because if you go to a huge stadium, you're mostly watching the screen. Question number one: What's it like being John Cleese? It's progressively more difficult as you get older because your memory doesn't go but it gets slower, you know? So you have to learn to play for time, some of it. And also, all the other bits don't function as well. So physically, it's worse. But in many ways, it's better because you don't worry about things so much. Uh, I found about 20 years ago, I was saying to myself when something went wrong, how much does it matter? And the answer almost invariably is not really, (laughs) not at all. And once you realize that, <clears throat> you you enjoy life more because anxiety is exactly what spoils enjoyment. Does it help being married to someone significantly younger than you? Yes. Yes. I mean, I had about, uh, I took 10 people out to lunch yesterday. And uh, with one exception, they were all in their 30s, 40s or 50s, um, which may sound... <laughs> old to some viewers but if you're just about to turn 84 they're pretty young i would like an invitation to lunch and i'd like to bring my wife with me because i think she'd have a jolly good time with you and your friends well that's quite possible and we've had lunch together uh, that, didn't we had yes. dinner at 
the Ivy on King's Road. Am I right? That was with my first wife. I'm on wife number two. Oh, you're up, but you're only up to two. That's okay. How long have you been with two? I've been with two. We've been married for over a year. We've we've we've, we've got a one year old John who's incredibly sweet called Wilfred. Oh my God! You've got a child. You see, I'm getting him. How do I? I don't want to. I don't want to take this call, much as I like the lady calling me, so I'm going to switch it off. Oh, that's uh, that's a nice year. Yeah, I think having a young wife is very, very good for one, because particularly if she's very funny and very silly. Because <laughs> you know, There was one occasion I came back to the flat and uh, I had a feeling she'd be there. And I looked around when I came in. We have a very small flat just off uh, Sloan Square. And uh, I checked the coffee cup was warm. So I thought, well, this is odd. And I called her name. I call her Fish because she swims like a fish. Fish, I said. And I thought, well, Mama, she must have popped out. And I went and sat down for about two or three minutes. And I thought, wait a moment, maybe she's in the bathroom, which is sort of round the corner. So I went back down the corridor and took a right at the bedroom uh, and, and squeezed between the bed and the bathroom door. And suddenly this arm shot out from under the bed and grasped me by the ankle and <laughs> screamed with terror. And she'd been lying under there about 12 minutes just for the for the uh, purpose of what scaring the extra ones out of me. <laughs> so, and when, you have, when you're married to someone like that, uh, you kind of it's hard to think anything matters much, you know. Because life could be very serious, can't it? So to have a, a daily dose of silliness is rather well, important. In recently, Matthew, I don't know if it's a question, but as so many people have died. I'm warning people, when you get to your late 70s, uh, they start dropping like flies and, and nobody warns you. So not only do you lose your coast friends, but you lose people that you had huge respect for, who've been sort of out there, you know, sort of setting the, the general direction. John le Carre, I knew a bit, and, and Jonathan Miller, and these huge figures. And suddenly it's like going back to a town where you grew up and all the big buildings are missing. Usually I ask people what their passions are and, and their special skills are towards the end of the interview. But I, th I think given we're still in the postcode of silliness, tell us what makes you laugh, how you have fun, apart from being grabbed by the ankle in an unsuspecting <laughs> manner. <laughs> what, are you, what are you good at, John, outside of the obvious? And what's your life like day to day? What, what, what My life is a little bit too busy. I know you... yeah, it's just too busy. Matthew, because at one stage, not so long ago, I had a little nest egg. It wasn't a big one because I worked for the BBC all my life. And if people think you're joking, I mean, the first uh, the first episode of, of Monty Python, I got £240. When uh, when I did six uh, faulty towers to start with, writing and performing, which took me 43 weeks, I got £6,000. I got £1,000 per episode. That's fifty for 500 for writing, 500 So the, the sort of money I make is nothing like the sort of money either that Americans make or people like <clears throat> dear old Rowan Atkinson or Griff Rhys-Jones or Mel Smith because 
they started at a time when the BBC was allowing comedians to make their own shows for their own company. And the BBC would pay for the making of the show. And for that, they would get two screenings. And then it belonged to Rowan and, and, and Griffin Mel again. And they then sold those companies 20 years later for 30 million. <laughs> so I feel a bit like Stanley Matthews being compared with David Beckham. You see what I mean? So that means that you are, when you say busy, you're rushing around doing one-man shows. And what you've been auditioning Basil. Yes, today. well, it's a, I, I came back here for three weeks. And, and uh, next year, depending on when the theatre becomes available, we're going to do a stage show, which is called Forty Towers Live. Now, I'm not in it, but I'm sort of there a little bit to help in the directorial department. And uh, I've already done this with a lovely woman called uh, C.J. Ranger, who directed the Python show at the O2, and we work very well together. We've already did this in Australia in uh, 2019, and then, of course, it suddenly stopped because of COVID. So here we are putting it together, but we've been auditioning people to play Basil, and I was quite really astonished at how good some of them were was a bit of a revelation, actually. I thought it would be very hard to find a great Basil, and I'm not so sure we don't already have four. <laughs> how, do you, how do you compare Faulty Towers with Monty Python? Quite different. Do, do you think one is better than the other? Do you think one is greater than the other? No, I think that would be like saying that peaches are better than oranges, you know? But think... some people think that peaches are better than oranges. Well, that's all right, but they've got to realize that's relatively subjective. <laughs> they they can't impose that preference on anyone else, you know. And uh, the point about Faulty Towers is it can be understood by children because it's basically about who is frightened of whom. You see what I mean? And children understand that. Whereas Monty Python is, first of all, silly, which children like, but it's also often got a an idea behind it, which is more serious. And of course, children aren't going to get that. So on the whole, they don't get Monty Python until much later when they're 12 or something like that, except for Holy Grail, because Holy Grail is, is very silly. And there's not so much in it as there is, for example, in Life of Brian, which I think is the best best thing we ever did and incidentally i've written a script for that for a stage production which i hope we will be doing in the second half of next year and we are auditioning for that tomorrow we're having a, a table read of of the stage version of life of brian which is in some ways matthew quite different you weren't very happy were you john when i think it was temporarily 40 towers an episode of 40 towers the, the episode i think was it the germans was withdrawn, and then I think it was later reinstated, wasn't it? I mean, this this was an example, yes, because perhaps. because of... a lot of people wrote rather rudely about the BBC's decision to, 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 to cut something, and they reversed their decision, which was good. But uh, <clears throat> it didn't particularly exercise me, because I've been working in television for a long time, and I know that very few of the people in charge have the slightest idea of what they're doing. So no, nothing really surprises me. I mean, some Americans bought the rights of 40 Towers. And when I met them and chatted to them, I said, have you made any changes? And they said, not really. Well, they said, there's one. We've written Basil out. 
So they removed, they bought faulty tires and removed basil from it. So when you have people like this in charge, then you just shrug most of the time. You might argue that's the sort of thing that could have happened within faulty towers, removing yes, basil. Exactly. That's right. And within Python too, because we used to do those letters from Radio Times or that, that sort of thing. And we used to make fun of that. But it is true that very few people in any in any um, part of life, whether it's politics or business, very few people know what they're doing. There's a few people who know just enough to get away with fooling other people into thinking that they know what they're doing. But by and large, I wouldn't say that more than 10 to 15% of any people in any profession really know what they're doing. Six out of seven don't. I mean, that's quite concerning when you consider... <laughs> the... <laughs> no, no, Matthew, it's very concerning. It's not quite concerning. Well, you just consider the implications of that, not just in politics, but in health and law and Absolutely. everywhere else. And this is why, in some ways, I think AI could be very good, because I don't think AI, by and large, it is good as the very best people, but it's rather better than the average ones. Could we just clear up? I want to get as exactly as we can your stance on cancel culture generally, please. Well, it's a, I think there's a lot of factors in it, and people are either pro or against, and it's much more complicated there, because you don't want people coming out and saying, let's go and kill someone, you know? But the moment you say, <clears throat> no, you shouldn't encourage people to kill them, uh, kill kill this person, then people will say, well, that's that's cancel culture. <laughs> that's, you're losing freedom of speech. So everybody thinks that freedom of speech is a good thing, but everyone disagrees on what you can actually be free to say. Um, I think on the whole, get make speech as free as possible because i think people what i like are the basic idea of liberal democracy is that we discuss things and sometimes some sort of consensus emerges and then you can have some legislation that will embody that improvement and if you look at it i mean in my lifetime probably the one really good thing that has happened is that women have produced have, have, have man managed to um, get into many more positions of power of course immediately say uh, people will say oh yes but it is not it's got a long way to yes yes but it's better it's an awful lot better than it was when I was 10 years of age, when I saw an envelope on our hall table that said, Mrs. R. F. Cleese. And I said to my mum, this is so funny. Do they really think that you have my father's initials? And she, they, she explained to me that she was Mrs. R. F. Cleese, and I thought it was completely insane. I was about eight but um, things have, certain things have got much better. It's much more tolerant. I mean, when I was growing up, homosexuality was illegal. And then they have a, so I can't remember the name of the report, and that's, that's much better now. So the, the revolutionaries never want to admit that anything's got better. You see what I mean? And the answer is, yes, some things have got better. Uh, the, the whole matter of slavery has got rather better in the last 220 years, you know? So, you know, people say, um, 
uh, what's, what's the phrase? They say liberalism has failed. No, human nature has failed. Humans are very unsatisfactory human beings. They don't know what they're doing most of the time. They're run by their unconscious and they are deep down fairly selfish unless there's a crisis when they become less selfish. Well, it's not a great, what's the word? They're not great material to start with, Matthew. One of the great comedians of the 20th century, in my view, these things are subjective. And here you are basically being a pessimist about human beings. Are we ready to believe you? Yes, of course, because humor is not about perfect people. We, we realized this about 10 minutes after the Pythons sat down to write about, uh, you know, Life of Brian. So Jesus appears at the beginning saying some of the Beatitudes and never appears again. But the whole point about someone who is perfect or really nice and intelligent and wise and behaves appropriately is they're not funny. It's when they cease to behave appropriately, when they get lustful or angry or envious or whether they're just plain stupid, that's when they start being funny. That's what humor is about. So it's like a kind of connect, a correcting force saying to people, you know, this is not the best possible way to behave. You know, Basil Fawlty is not a wonderful, wise, generous human being. He's hilarious and we love him, but he's an awful human being. <laughs> so in a way, because we think of tragedy, don't we? We think of tragedy, Shakespearean tragedy, let's say, as being cathartic. Bad things happen, but they're not happening to you. And you go through a catharsis when you're in the theatre watching. But in a way, comedy or dark comedy can be cathartic as well, can't it? We look you see, laughter is good for us. There's even um, medical evidence that it helps our immune systems. There are laughing clubs in India where people get together in the morning and they laugh. And the extraordinary thing is they start out telling each other jokes and then they run out of jokes. You know what they do then? They just laugh. Not at anything in particular. They just start laughing and they all have a good laugh. And that laughter is just as good as real laughter for making you feel better. I was in Sarajevo. Uh, and that was under siege by the Serbians for four years. The Serbians sitting up in the hills, lobbing shells down into Sarajevo, which is in a valley, shooting people crossing the street with telescopic sighted rifles. And the the um, the Sarajevans, uh, what they did was they got an underground garage and they turned it into a cinema. And... After dark, when it was safe to move around, they would go to the cinema and they would watch comedy, nothing else. They would watch comedy. And they told me when I visited it that after they'd watched the comedy, they came out feeling better. Now, nothing had improved, but they felt better and felt more able to cope with the situation because they'd been laughing. And this is one of the problems, I think, that you have a lot of people without much sense of humor trying to control what people with a sense of humor are allowed to laugh at. And I think that is quite wrong. So where are you on causing offense in comedy? My attitude is on the whole is that if you're going to be offended, put up a warning. And if you think you're going to be offended, 
then don't watch the program, but don't try and watch other stop other people from watching it on the grounds that it offends you. <clears throat> if it doesn't offend them, they should be allowed to watch it. So on the whole, I think you warn people, which is sensible, and then they have a choice. But presumably, because you accept that there are lines to be drawn in free speech, so in comedy, there are certain things that you wouldn't put on television, for example. You wouldn't have racist comedy on BBC One, would you? And you'd hope you wouldn't have it in, in comedy clubs either. Well, it depends what you mean by racist comedy. I mean, a lot of, a lot of racist comedy is, is um, much more cultural comedy. You know, you make fun of people because of their culture. I mean, you don't usually make fun of people, or at least I know many people who do them just because they have a different skin color. It's because they behave differently. I mean, to we when I grew up, people doing French accents and talking like this. It can you see your smile already? Do you hate the French? No, you don't. And then one of the things I do on stage is I tell lots of jokes about Scandinavians. Germans, Belgians, Australians, Americans, Canadians, English. And then I say there were these two Mexicans and the whole room freezes. And then I say, what happened? And these people start laughing because they know what I'm talking about. I said, you mean Mexicans are such pathetic, hopeless, um, sort of gutless little creatures that they can't have jokes about them? But it's all right for Germans and Swedes and, and, and Austrians because they're proper grown-ups and they don't mind. It's so condescending, that attitude. And I particularly dislike the some of the woke people who are determined to defend other people who can defend themselves perfectly well. It's, it's a lot of it is virtue signaling, you know. Where, where are you on your politics, John? Because I, I, it's quite difficult <laughs> to pin you down, which may be no bad thing. I mean, you've been a Lib Dem in the past. You've been, you've, I think you've identified with, with not just the Lib Dems, but with others. You were, you were in favour of Brexit, but you, you understand well, I was, importance... You see, I was in favour of Brexit. This is what, I'll tell you what, people ask me about Brexit. And I said, economically, I have no idea. I have very little interest in economics. And I don't know whether it's good or bad. But I said, this is a time when the French and German are trying to get us to join for a common foreign policy. And I don't think we want a co common foreign policy. There are certain disadvantages. And people kind of think that the EU is, was always a wonderful thing. No, Clement Attlee was against it. Um, Gates School was against it, and a lot of other people like Tony Benn and Peter Shaw, a lot of the Labour Party was against it for a long time. And people try and pretend that it is completely black and white. But the trouble was you had a particularly stupid and incompetent group of people who were carrying it out, who had no idea how dislocating it was going to be. And it's proved to be a disaster. But if that had been carried out by people who actually knew what they were doing, it might not have been so much of a disaster. But everybody wants to say, oh, you were right or you were wrong, because human beings love to be right. And it's almost their worst feature, because people want to be right, even if it's something they don't know much about, Matthew, you know, but they have an opinion and they want, want it to be right. What's the matter? Hang on, we've got the dogs. Hang on. Boys, hang on, just to stop the dogs. Dogs? Mm -hmm. What's going on?
What's going on? Someone delivered flowers and the Cocker Spaniels went mad. <laughs> so you, I think you were saying something about people not want, not wanting, to, not liking being wrong or what? Well, yes, but right. most people, as I say, even if it's a subject they don't know much about, they want to be right and they will argue their opinion despite the fact they're completely uninformed about it. You know, but they want to be right. And I I don't think you have to be right. I think a lot of the time you can say, I don't know. So when they asked me about Brexit, I said, I really don't know. I don't know about the economics, but I think it's better to have an independent foreign policy. Coming back to your work, when are you most John Cleese? As in, what are you? when are you most in your element is what I'm trying to say. When I'm writing. I think when I'm writing comedy, provided that the deadline is not creeping up on me too fast. I really love it. There's a dignity to writing comedy because you can do it when you want, provided you get it done. And what I don't like about being on a film is that if you're on a film, the third assistant who will be about 19 years of age will say, Mr. Cleese, we're going to be picking you up at half past six in the morning. And you can't say, fuck off. You know, you could be ready to get in the car at half past six. And it reminds me of being back at school. Whereas if I have something to write, I really enjoy that. I, I even enjoy the arid periods because I believe sometimes that you can't have a new idea until you got rid of an old one. Where does your funniness come from? And, and let me just give that a little bit of context. A few years ago, I interviewed you and the other four Pythons for the front cover of the Telegraph magazine. And clearly you had the most extraordinary, and there was a sixth Python, of course, wasn't there? You had yeah. an extraordinary ability to, to be collaborative. Do you find it easier to be funny when you're on your own, sort of spontaneously funny perhaps? Or do you find it easier when you're collaborating? I think when you're collaborating with someone else, you get to places that you probably wouldn't have got to on your own. And I think collaborating is very good, but I don't think you can do that if you're doing something personal. I mean, for me, one of the most uh, uh, satisfactory things I ever did was an autobiography called uh, So Anyway. And that, when I, when I finished that, I thought that's as near to what I had in my mind at the beginning as anything I'd ever done. Uh, and that was was very, very satisfactory feeling. Did that answer your question? I think so. I, I interviewed you. That was when we were on the, on the Salisbury Playhouse stage about so anyway. Well, do you see... Um, it I... was personal. It was, John, it was personal, wasn't it? It went back into your childhood. It sort of... In yeah, a way... so if you're talking about your childhood and your fears and, and, and happiness, is that you don't want someone else there saying, no, that's not what you were feeling, you know, because <laughs> it would be inappropriate. But once you're, once you're working, I mean, what people don't understand is that a good team is a team where everyone does different things, not where you have six people doing the same thing. You see what I mean? So in Python, for example, uh, Michael Palin is the most brilliant creator of comic personalities of everyone I've ever come across. Terry Jones used to have wonderful big ideas, but he wasn't terribly good at dialogue. You see what I mean? Now, Eric was very, very good at verbal stuff, but he wasn't so good at anything that had emotion in it. 
And Gilliam could hardly speak the human language or any human language, but he was phenomenal if you gave him a pen and pencil and asked him to draw a paint. So, so we were all good at completely different things. And that's why we were such a good team. And it's also why we've now gone off in completely different directions. I mean, Mickey, as I call him, hasn't hasn't done comedy, as far as I can remember, for 20 years. He hasn't tried He's done very good, excuse me, oh, very good travel programs. Was that, was that a deliberately timed yawn, John? Yes, I tease him, I tease him <laughs> a lot. I tell him that uh, his shows on American television are sponsored by the American Insomniac Society. And the people who have not slept in their entire lives have only got to sit down in front of pole to pole for 20 minutes and they nod off. I tease him wickedly. Of the surviving pythons, which one are you closest to personally? Personally, Michael, I've always been closest to Michael. I mean, Graham and I were very close when we were writing because we had an identical sense of humor, but not most of the rest of the time. I always thought there was something quite odd about Gray. Um, I like Gilliam, but I have no idea who he is. He seems to me to be quite a number of people, one of whom is someone who goes to film festivals all the time because it's the only place he's recognized. <laughs> and uh, and oh, I, I'm fond of them all in different ways, but they're very, very different people. And that's why they've all gone off. I mean, Gilliam's become a very well-known film director, you know? Now, and Jonesy did that, but none of the rest of us are interested in directing films at all. If an alien spaceship came down to Earth and you were only able to entertain them with one film, the choice being, the choice I'm giving you, being between A Fish Called Wonder and Clockwise, two, oh. of, my, two of my favourite films ever, which one would you present to the aliens? Uh, Life of Brian. <laughs> <laughs> You're not allowed to cheat, John. You've already told me that was your greatest film. You're not allowed yeah, to all cheat. Right. Um, sorry, what was it? Clockwise or what? A Fish Called Wonder. Oh, I think A Fish Called Wonder, because that has some very, very funny scenes in it, like Michael Palin running Kevin Klein over with a steamroller. <laughs> you know? I, I love that kind of that kind of comedy. Which is more important to you, your work life or your recreational life? And by that, I don't mean obviously you work in order to make to make money. So perhaps saying asking you which is more important is the wrong question. Which do you enjoy most when you're not working or when I you are working? I enjoy most, and this may sound rather grand. What I enjoy most is trying to understand things that I have not previously understood. Uh, for example, the most satisfactory thing that's happened to me in the last few years is that I've read a book called The Master and His Emissary by Ian McGilchrist. And it's about the fact that our brain consists of two hemispheres which are not symmetrical and which seem to have a different approach to life. So that make getting them, uh, as it were, to work together is one of our should be one of our aims and that our society has become much too left brain now if i understand something like that that gives me more satisfaction almost than anything else trying to understand something when i'm confronted with a fact like the fact that people now will buy a pre-owned car but not a second-hand car it panics me because i think 
I don't understand the difference, but it really matters. People will buy a pre-owned car. They won't. They won't uh, buy a second-hand car. And when I am confronted with that, there's a big, big bit of me that gets panicked and thinks, "I don't understand this. How is this possible?" So I love it when I understand something. I mentioned your parents very briefly earlier. This is my penultimate question. What were they like, John? How do you remember them? I remember Dad as a very kind and quite relaxed man, and in many ways the least ambitious man I've ever come across, but perfectly happy with it. He was married to a woman I'm afraid was difficult, who was um, very... uh, anxious most of the time and uh, had a pretty bad temper and she was pretty frightening when she was when she was depressed a lot but one extraordinary thing about my mother is she had a very very black sense of humor and then i discovered that later in life it was a way we could uh, we could communicate but you know she would tell me how depressed she was and i would tell her that I knew a little man in Fulham, and if she was very depressed next week, you remember, I could get him to come up to London to kill her. And she, whenever she started saying after that that she was depressed, I said, well, should I be calling the little man in Fulham? And she, she'd laugh and say, oh, no, I've got a sherry party on Friday. I don't want and it was a way of connecting with, with her through humor. But she was not a comfortable person, basically. And I think she was one of those mothers who was so anxious that she found it hard to be in the moment. And if you can't be in the moment and do that dance of the eyes with your baby, I don't think the baby is ever going to be as confident as someone who's had a mother who does the eye dance with with them. Hang on a second. Are you telling me that you're not confident? No, I've become more confident with with life. But I remember talking to dear Gary Lineker once, and he told me that if if it was nil all at full time, then he, when there were penalties to be taken, he wanted to take the penalty, whereas I would <laughs> spend every penny I got on not taking the penalty. So the fundamental confidence isn't there. But as you get older and a little bit wiser, I think in a way you become more confident because you also think to yourself, well, this is who I am. And if people don't like me, it's not my problem. 20th question is, you say that your dad was very, very unambitious. Were you ambitious growing up? And how did John Cleese become the John Cleese we came to know in the public eye? I don't think I was very ambitious. I spent a lot of time after I'd done the Frost Report wondering whether I should be. I I, I like making people laugh. Everybody likes me. If you tell a joke, right, if you tell a joke at the party and everyone laughs, you feel good. So I like that. But it's it's never mattered to me very much to be very ambitious. I think... Because when I was 18, I went off to teach at my old prep school. And I said to the senior master, I said, give me a poem to learn. And he said, learn Gray's Elegy. And Gray's Elegy contains the wonderful line, the paths of glory lead but to the grave. 
So I think an awful lot of people are out there chasing honors and money and power, which at the end of the day are not important, although they think they're all important. Because you're John Cleese, I'm going to ask you a quick fire series of questions. I'm going to hit them with you very, very... Rishi, I'm just finishing an interview. I'll call you back in how soon, Matthew? Five minutes. Five minutes. All right, Fishy? Right. Right. Uh, so she often calls quick... me on stage, and sometimes I get the audience to talk to her. <laughs> Fish often calls you on stage, and you, sometimes you get the audience to, to talk to her. I get them to talk to her, because I tell them that her nickname is Fish, and then you get a, a 1,200 people all shouting, Hello, Fish! <laughs> it makes her unreasonably happy. <laughs> One of the great perks of being married to John Cleese. Okay, quick fire question. Am I? Is it fair to say that you're not a big fan of the Conservative government? I think that they have reduced our country in the last three or four prime ministers to a state I never believed before. I don't expect politicians to be that competent, but the corruption in this country now is sickening. And the fact that we were the number one centre in the world for laundering Russian money shows you the morals of the upper middle class. Is it fair to say that you're, you haven't always been the biggest fan of the British print media? <laughs> no, I think they're terrible and have been for 30 years. I think when Mur Murdoch originally uh, bought a paper here, he, he, he put a curse on the country because it's nothing to do with objective reporting anymore. And you can't run a democracy unless there's some reliable information out there. And when you have papers now like the Telegraph and the Mail, I made a good joke on Twitter the other day. I said, you don't have to buy those papers anymore because you can get all their information from Conservative Central Office for free. <laughs> I think I our page, our the papers are appalling. And if people like to watch my first show on GB News, which is Sunday the 29th at nine o'clock, they will discover that I am have some people on who say very interesting but very critical things about the British press. Are you a fan of GB News? Uh, what I like about them is they don't interfere with programs that I'm making. I mean, I've never had the freedom that I had. And people sort of say, well, why do you work for BBC News? I know millions of people who work for Rupert Murdoch. You say, why do you work for GB News, not BBC News, GB News? No, 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 GB News. No, GB News. And the answer is because people, uh, I wouldn't work for Rupert Murdoch under any circumstances at all. And anyone who writes for Rupert Murdoch and says to me, why are you working for GB News? Because I prefer GB News to Rupert Murdoch. What is the greatest sport? in the world cricket and in in one sentence explain to americans why they should love cricket they would never understand they're in too much of a hurry what is your favorite type of food or oh, asian food do you have a special skill that we don't know about or probably don't know about i'm quite good at chairing meetings do you think you will ever <laughs> that's interesting do you think you'll ever come back to live in england yes if the tories are thrown out but John not Cle till, not till they're thrown out John Cleese, it's been a great pleasure talking to you. <laughs> Good thank to you. see you again, Matthew. Thank, thank you for answering my 20 questions. <laughs> were there 20? Well, there were a few more in the end. A few more in the end. Good. Well, that was fun. Thanks.